When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Holly Prescott, who is careers advisor for postgraduate researchers and is the author of Beyond the Data, Navigating the Struggles of Post-PhD Employability, which is a chapter in the SAGE Handbook of Graduate Employability. Welcome to the show, Holly. Um, Hi, Christina. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about it. Um, I know so many listeners have concerns about how they figure out their life as soon as they graduate. and people who have already graduated and are still trying to figure out maybe hidden curriculum that they need in order to move forward. But before we dive into all of that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, of course. Um, So as you said, uh, my name's Holly, uh, and I am a careers advisor for postgraduate researchers working at the University of Birmingham um, in the UK. Um, So I'll explain what that means, um, because in the UK, we use this term postgraduate researchers to mean... um, I guess, graduate students taking a research-based degree. So that means that uh, most of the uh, students in my caseload are on research masters or PhD or other doctoral programmes. And I support them uh, in thinking about making their next steps uh, after uh, their their research degrees, after their PhDs. I think one of the things that I'm most passionate about is helping um, these postgraduate researchers, helping doctoral graduates uh, to understand their options uh, and to make the move into a wide array um, of of meaningful and interesting careers. Um, So I guess that's why I do the work that I do today. Um, The motivation for that work does come from my own doctoral experience as well. I did a PhD in literature and cultural geography at the University of Birmingham in the UK uh, between 2008 and 2011. That's right, you can do a PhD in three years uh, in the UK, uh, and I did. Um, And it was in the second year uh, of my PhD that I realised that... um, Academia wasn't a long-term home for me for a variety of reasons and started to explore other options. Um, And that led me to developing some of the resources and some of the techniques that I use uh, with the researchers um, in in my everyday work uh, now. What led you into this field? You shared your passion and your a little bit about your own graduate experience, but how did you know this was a job? How did you know this was a career field that you could you could be in? Yeah, very good question. Um, I knew that careers advice and careers guidance was a thing because I used my career service 
when I was a graduate student myself. Um, if I'm honest, I didn't know that specialist career guidance for, for graduate students, for PhDs, was a thing. Um, but it was it became my plan to make it a thing. Um, I, I think I spotted there was a bit of a gap in tailored advice and support for people with higher degrees. Um, but I, I didn't move into this work straight away. I think it took me a while. Like, how's the best way to describe it? I think I had to work around to it, um, by which I mean coming straight out of the PhD, I actually worked in... Um, student recruitment uh, and higher education marketing for a while um, as my first job. And I just used that job within the university to survey the scene and see what other interesting career routes there were within universities that weren't traditional academia. And career guidance struck me as one of them. And so I made the most of the fact that I worked in a university already uh, to make some contacts over in the careers department, uh, shadow some of them doing some of their appointments, get an understanding as to whether that was work that I would enjoy. And and, and I very much felt it was. Um, But it was always my goal to specifically work with um, graduate students with with people particularly people doing PhDs and all it took was for me to kind of hang around gather experience and wait until the time was right that my institution made a bid for a specialist person to support um, postgraduate researchers and I applied and um, that was six years ago uh, now and I'm still in that role. It sounds like both the school that you attended and the one where you work now had a very strong office to help with this. Many of us uh, attended schools where there there were there weren't these types of resources. Is it more common in the UK to have um, someone dedicated to help students figure out their employability? I would say it's pretty typical. Yes. So. Um... I'm going to get my stats wrong now, but if we look at the UK, obviously very small country, but a very strong reputation for higher education, we've probably got about 150, 160 universities uh, across the whole country. Um, Every one of those will have a career service of some description, uh, and that will include a team of people um, who are there to give information, advice and guidance to Uh, students of all levels on um, working out their options, um, working through any worries or anxieties they have about taking their next steps, uh, and also practical things uh, like opportunities to meet employers on campus, uh, support with applications and interviews and things like that. It's less typical to have someone like me focused just on the PhD students, uh, just on the postgraduate researchers. This is becoming more common now in the UK, um, but there are still lots of institutions who don't have a version of me, um, if you like. So I consider myself to be quite lucky in that I have a full-time job um, just focused on on postgraduate researchers and I'm kind of able to immerse myself um, in that caseload and in their concerns and, and, uh, and, and, and their preoccupations day to day. And I guess it's that experience um, 
that uh, that ended up uh, leading to this book chapter? It seems like the fact that you went to grad school and you got your PhD would really help you understand the mindset of the people that you're working with, the fears that they're facing, and also help them trust you. Sometimes it can be difficult to know who to take advice from and why they're giving the advice that they give. Do you find that the fact that you went to grad school yourself is an asset for this position? I would say so. I, I, I think it brings exactly what you said, um, a trust that I understand where the people I work with are coming from. Um, I have to be careful as a guidance practitioner because we're trained as um, impartial uh, um, practitioners and we're often warned about bringing our own experience into guidance because there are some places where that's not appropriate. We, you know, we, we have to be very wary of projecting our own situation and our own circumstances upon others. Um, and and in, in some cases, that that that's uh, that's not appropriate to do. But I feel, yeah, I I feel like just the fact that I have doctor in front of my name and that I went through the PhD process helps because. I feel like so many graduate students, first of all, don't feel like a graduate uh, in, in, in the traditional sense. So they feel like they've invested a lot more time, money and other resources into their education uh, and they want that to be appreciated um, in their next steps. Because of that, they can feel very unsure about where they stand um, next to what we might think of traditional graduate jobs um, versus um, jobs looking for more experienced professionals. Um, and, uh, and that's a tension I talk about in the book chapter. So I feel like they want someone who understands um, the fact that employers don't, don't all, um, employers often don't know what a PhD involves uh, and, and what that means and, and how to na- how they can navigate that. Um, and also just practical things um, like how job hunting fits into the timeline of a PhD, of submission, um, having the viva or the defence, uh, doing corrections and things like that. So I think the fact that I've been through that process um definitely kind of helps with a bit of credibility and trust. And the book chapter is about navigating these struggles. Um, You just highlighted one of the uh, struggles that you cover in the chapter, which is many employers don't know the value that we're bringing in with our PhD unless we tell them. And you point out one of the uh, other struggles is that grad students often have no idea how to translate what they've done in academia into terms and skills that the employer or would-be employer would find to be a good match for the job. The job postings aren't going to say, we're looking for a PhD. They aren't going to say, we hope you wrote a great dissertation. Um, And so you, you take us through that really crucial struggle. It's one that you see a lot at, at your job, right? It is. It is one that I see a lot. And and I think what 
what inspired me to focus on that particular challenge in the book chapter was I get I see so many graduate students trying to explore careers beyond academia and the way they're trying to do it is by googling things like PhD psychology jobs PhD history jobs so I see them try to search for options using search terms according to their level of degree uh, and their academic subject and as you just alluded to there Christina that means there's a mismatch between the search terms that graduate students are using to uh, research options and the search terms that employers are using to identify candidates because employers are often not using um, search terms of uh, oh, looking for somebody with a PhD in a very specific subject because that limits their hiring pool. Instead, they're looking for people with, um, you know, uh, with the great ability to handle large amounts of data or um, a, 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 an ability to um, uh, convey complex information in an accessible way. They're looking for skills. Uh, a lot of the time. Um, and so often I see um, people struggling with, uh, I'm looking for options beyond academia, what do I Google? <laughs> um, is, 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 is one of the most common questions. Um, and so this, this, this challenge of helping graduate students understand that what employers value out there in the job market is sometimes different from what we've been taught to value in academia. We've been taught to value, as you say, did you write a good dissertation? Do you have publications? How many conferences have you done? Employers value things like transferable skills, personal skills, um, and want to know how you can help them to solve their problems. And so I think that's, helping graduate students understand those key differences is a big part of my work. In the chapter, you offer a great um, exercise for graduates to do as they're getting ready to enter the job market, which is to try to write down what they do as directions for a grad student who might be replacing them. And in doing that, they'll start to see the breadth of skills that they use, the variety of projects that they've worked on. And those things then can really highlight for them what they're good at and what they know how to do in a way that most of us aren't self-aware of. We've just been surviving higher ed. We've been immersed in an academic life since preschool. And we haven't really stopped and thought about what these skills are and how we're using them. Can you talk about that wonderful idea to write out what you're doing as almost a job ad? Yeah. So I, I was inspired in, in this kind of exercise by a book called Going Alt-Ac, um, which is a guide to alternative academic careers. Um, it's written by Catherine E. Linder, Kevin Kelly and Thomas J. Tobin. Um, and uh, in that book, they talk about imagining your PhD as if it's a job advert. I tweaked it slightly. Um, and um, something I do with, with PhDs is to get them to think about 
their PhD as if they were coming up with a list of instructions for somebody to take over from them. So I say, imagine you're going on a lovely sabbatical. You're going to hire somebody. You're going to bring somebody in to replace you. And you need to leave them with instructions of what they'll need to do and what they'll need to be good at uh, in order to take over from you and do your research in your absence. And the rationale for this is because this is something that I've seen at work when I've had one-to-one consultations with researchers. If I put someone on the spot and say, tell me about the skills you've developed during your PhD, they often find that very difficult to answer for many reasons, I think. First of all, because of what you just mentioned in the A lot of our skills in academia fly under the radar because they're just expected of us. Also, in academia, we're taught to value the output of our skills, like the publication, the paper, the dissertation, over and above the skills that went into producing them. Um, And also, um, other kind of you know more personal aspects like imposter phenomenon and uh, it can be difficult for us to see our own skills um if we're used to being critiqued a lot uh, if we're actually used to being told about where we fall down um rather th- than where our strengths are and i think for those three reasons asking people from the perspective of, oh what are you good at what skills have you been developing is difficult to answer if you flip that round and i ask someone instead to say right okay if you were going to tell somebody else how you um um, how it is that you do your discourse analysis in your PhD, they'll freely talk about, well, they'll need to do this, they'll need to know this, they'll need to be able to do this, and say, okay, great, there you go, well, that's your list of skills. So it, it, it's it's just making that transformation, what I call um, putting things in the second person rather than the first person. It's an exercise that moves people from saying, I have this skill, I'm good at this, which can feel uncomfortable to to do my research. You will need, you will have to be good at, you must be able to. And there's something in that shift from first to second person that seems to really help people to then mine their PhD work and pull out the transferable skills. I'm sitting here nodding along. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's so true. It's, before we started taping, you asked me to explain the background of the podcast, and I was so embarrassed um, because I'm not used to talking about myself, and I don't want to sound like something is about me. Mm. Uh, we're trained out of that in academia. Yeah. You spend so long as a student in support of the professor that you're assigned to. If you're the TA, you know, you're a teaching assistant for a class that has the professor's name on it. Mm. You're helping students understand books that were written by someone else. Um, when students come to office hours and want help with the paper, you're helping them troubleshoot how to make their work better. It's really awkward to transition into talking about yourself unless you have a certain sort of personality and, and I don't have one <laughs> like that. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Is that common? Um, is it more common than not to, to come across students like me who um, blush and are uncomfortable? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, one of the most common things that people will say is, 
um, that if they are asked to talk about their strengths uh, and to talk about their achievements and what they're good at, that they can feel uh, disingenuous, uh, that they don't feel authentic doing that, um, that they feel uh, difficult um, to big themselves up, uh, even going so far as some of them feeling like a fraud, um, if 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 they're uh, you know, if they're to talk about um, their skills and, and what they've achieved in, in in this positive light, and I do have a response to that, and I, I I understand it can feel very uncomfortable to put yourself front and center when, as you say, you're so used to stepping back um, and uh, and 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 letting the um, you know, let, let, letting the text or letting the course text or letting the theory or letting the concepts um, take, uh, uh, you know, uh, be in the spotlight. But what I would say is to that is to, for, I try to help people reframe this from bigging oneself up to an act of understanding, really. And, and get them to think about it from this perspective. And the, the first thing to do is understand, understand the employer. So the job they've got that's come up, why is that job come up? What are the drivers behind it? And what's the employer trying to achieve with it? Right, because chances are that job has come up because that particular employer needs something specific doing. They need to launch a new master's course or they need to um, reach out to a wider audience or they need to launch a new product or something like that. That job will have come up for, for a reason. So it's understanding that, understanding why the jobs come up in the first place and then being able to talk about how you can help that employer achieve what they want to achieve with that job. So that's flipping it so that you're not saying, oh, yeah, you've got to you've got to really um, fluff yourself up and, and big up your experience and big up your skills. And instead, it's just saying, try to understand your audience, understand their needs and then tell them what are the ways that you can help them with those needs. And that tends to help people think about it less in terms of boasting uh, and more in terms of um, a form of emotional intelligence, I would say. The model for grad school is often assumed to be an apprenticeship for becoming a professor. But the reality is that there are very few open professor jobs. Um, So much of higher ed, at least in the States, has been turned into adjunct jobs, which are part-time temporary jobs that are class by class, not even semester by semester. And there's a reframing that grad students have to do um, from thinking that they could become a professor to that they need to look for a job outside academia. Um, One thing that you mention in your chapter is an impediment for students in this is what's called Horizons for Action. And it's it's a really important um, mindset that you bring up. Can you talk about horizons for action and how much that affects us as we start to think about what do we do going forward? 
Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I talk about this in the book chapter um, as an important concept because uh, I feel like sometimes um, grad students' anxieties about next steps can really be exacerbated by these limited horizons for action. Um, so horizons for action is a, a phrase um, that comes from um, two career theorists, Hodkinson and Sparks, um, who um, coined a career theory called careership. Um, and what the, they um, and what horizons for action means is that the things that we can do, the future options that we have are necessarily limited by our field of vision. So it's important to think about how it's important for me in my work to understand how graduate students' field of vision might be limited. And that could be through lots of different things. It could be that their first generation to go to university, um, that they don't have contacts in their friends and their family who have gone to graduate school so they don't have clear ideas about what people do after graduate school so that kind of social capital could be narrowing their horizons for action um, it could be even the influence of uh, their peers within academia um, it could be advisors um, and supervisors and peers, for example, um, telling them things like they don't need to look beyond academia or they shouldn't look beyond academia or looking outside of academia is a failure. Um, so they, they choose to then narrow their horizons for action. Also might be that within academia, they're surrounded by other people who've only ever been in academia, um, which again, further limits people's um uh, uh, uh people's field of vision uh, in understanding what options are out there and what future selves are possible for them um so that's why i think it's a useful concept it's really useful to think um and for us to think about what are the factors that might be narrowing graduate students horizons for action and how can we tackle that? How can we help them to widen their horizons for action? Um, and there are some, I make some suggestions about that in the book chapter. Um, and again, it's answering that question that uh, informs a lot of the work that I do day to day. Would you like to offer a, a suggestion? Yeah, of course. Um, I'd, I'd say, yeah, a couple of top suggestions here would be for graduate students um, to, first of all, from an early stage, um, build a network um, of um, people who've graduated from the same or similar PhD programs. Um, so you build a network on LinkedIn or other platforms so you can understand what people before you have gone on to do. Uh, that can help to, to widen um, your horizons for action. Know who to go to, um, to talk to about these things. So think about where your, I'd urge grad students to think about where their current information is coming from. And if it's coming from a very narrow, limited pool of people who represent a certain mindset or a certain opinion, try to widen that. And know who to turn to for objective 
um, impartial advice. For example, you may have a career service or career centre as part of your school or your university. Um, so don't be afraid to um, talk about options uh, with someone who's experienced in helping graduate students um, and, and who... Um, doesn't have their own designs to impose upon you um, and and can help you with uh, different research techniques and ways of of going away and widening your horizons for action. Um, And yeah, but to sum it up, I'd just say talk to people. One of the things I do on this channel is ask people how they got their job. And one of my hopes is that listeners who don't have a network for whatever reason, um, we'll sort of build one from episode after episode hearing how people got their jobs. Mm. It starts to maybe not make a map forward for the particular listener, but to broaden their horizon for action in, in more creative thinking for themselves of, oh, I didn't know that was an option, or now I'm thinking of someone I never would have gone to before, um, or to even take a risk in cold emailing, or I found you on Twitter, um, and I and I sent you a DM, and you, you very nicely answered me, Holly, and I got in touch with your press, and I got the book, and it, the worst that was going to happen was you were going to say no. Yeah, absolutely, and, I, and that's why I think that those of us who have been through grad school, uh, and moved into a wide array of different careers, have a certain responsibility to be visible um, and to, to to share our stories where we can, um, whether that's through a case study for the website of our alma mater, um, whether that's um, outlining our career journey on something like LinkedIn. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's it's that kind of openness and that kind of visibility um, that uh, that that paves the way for, for for those who come after us. You mentioned a few moments ago that some students feel like it's a failure if they realize that they do not want to become a professor or that it's unrealistic for for whatever reason. Do you have a sense of where that mindset comes from? It's pervasive. It was throughout my graduate program as well, and I was in a different country from you, and yet it seems to be a common theme that's brought up that people feel like there's a sense of failure if they go to graduate school and they don't become a professor or else they're being, um, we use a term in the States called alt-ack, that they're going alt-ack as almost as though they're leaving Mm. um, the academic setting when 70 or more percent of the people who go through graduate school were never going to remain affiliated with higher ed. Mm. Do you have a sense of why there's either a sense of failure or rebellion in these choices? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, failure or rebellion. I think that's um, a really good way of putting it because in some of the research papers that I read um as a lit review for my book chapter and um, a lot of the evidence um, where researchers had interviewed graduate students and postdocs about their experiences of um, of going alt act um, seemed to sort of yeah um, um, 
move between these two poles of making them feel either a like the naughty child the black sheep um of of the black sheep of the lab or the naughty child of the group so that would be the the rebel um or the the failure the sellout um which would be the 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 other um pole and i I do think that, that that those two identities are um, do come through quite strongly in some of the researchers I work with. I think there are a lot of reasons for this. The first, I think, could purely be a lack of understanding of what the other options are. And I'm not putting that on the graduate students themselves. I'm, I'm saying a lack of awareness amongst more senior academics of, of what graduate students do go on to do and what they can go on to do. Because I, you know, a, a, a lot of um, lecturers, professors might have only ever been in academia, so they don't know the other things that that someone with a PhD could turn their hand to. Um, so their defensive response might be, "Well, the only thing you can do is to do what I've done, which is stay in academia." So I think lack of awareness of the other options not just on behalf of the grad students, but on behalf of their advisors and their supervisors as well could be one thing here. Um, I also think there's probably a funding and a policy reason. So this might be quite UK specific, but I think some of the shame or the, the, the rebellion in exploring options beyond academia might come from um advisors and supervisors feeling like they're investing a lot of time and energy into their graduate students um and that if those graduate students kind of don't continue the tradition and stay within the academy that that investment of time and effort has somehow been a waste um i think that can lead to more senior academic kind of um um sometimes subconsciously putting out the uh, the idea that um that, that staying is good and and leaving is bad uh, and i think that's why development of research culture and a move towards a mindset where um the goal in supervising a phd is to create a, a well-rounded researcher um, who is happy and who has options. Um, that the, the 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 aim is to develop a person, develop a researcher uh, over and above the PhD project itself. I hope that makes sense for a, a US audience as much as it does for a a UK audience. It does, and it ties into things in the chapter that you that you lay out as there's four main things that you lay out that that graduate students are impacted by um, when they're struggling to figure out their post-PhD employability. And and you've just touched on um, one of them, which is the need to revise their professional identity. Yeah, and absolutely. Grad students are mostly stuck doing that post-PhD. Their advisors aren't helping them have this holistic view of themselves that you just outlined. They have to figure it out after they graduate and they can go through a real 
personal crisis. Who am I if I'm not my research? Who am I if I'm not at school? Who am I if I'm not tied to these projects? Mm. Do you want to talk about the the professional identity crisis that a lot of students go through when they graduate? Yeah, certainly. I, I think it possibly comes from something that happens if we've been in academia for quite a long time, which is we start to conflate who we are with what we do. Um, and our identity becomes very, very bound up in what we research uh, and, and the work that we do. And I think that's for a number of, uh, of reasons. Um, I think it's, you know, research can be very all encompassing. Um, it's hard to know when you're done. Um, doing your research there's no clear boundaries kind of between where your research starts and you begin I guess um and um yeah I, I think we can therefore find get into a position where it's really easy to conflate who we are um with 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 the work that we do therefore if we're then in a position where we're contemplating a future where we're not doing that academic work anymore well then that begs the question well then what does that make me who who am I then what what am I if I'm not doing this thing that has defined me for for so long and this is why I think it's important for people to tap into what does being an academic mean to them because it means different things to different people. If you ask yourself, what what is being acad- what does being academic mean to me? Does it mean contributing to scholarship? Does it mean um, advising and guiding students in some way? Does it mean um, uh, does it mean teaching? Um, does it mean? Um, being a go-to person in your field and being the person who's consulted um, about questions and problems in your field. You see, so there's quite a lot of things that being an academic can comprise. There's quite a lot of things that being an academic can mean to people. And if you work out what it means to you, then what you can do is ask the question, well, what other jobs and what other work environments would still let me be that? would still let me advise and guide students, would still let me be a go-to person for my expertise, would still let me uh, teach and train others. And there you are, your key, your understanding uh, the bits of your academic identity that mean the most to you and actively thinking about how you can still live those out um, in many other um, arenas in your life, professional and personal, um, and not just, you know, academia is not the only place you can do and be those things. Uh, and, and that, I think, is something really important to get a handle on. And that's definitely something that it took me a while to understand when I finished my own PhD. hope that makes sense. It does. You see in the in the chapter that you want to challenge the dichotomy of this portrayal of the, it's either the PhD is training us for academia or it's training for industry. And 
it seems in the chapter you're saying that that dichotomy is part of what's making the stress on students. That they're going to have to make a hard choice. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, and and it sets up a, a a dichotomous language of you prepare for academia or you prepare for industry, and I think that's a misnomer because what I explain towards the end of the book chapter is that research shows that the working practices and working structures within academia are becoming closer and closer, more and more similar to working cultures and practices that we find outside of academia. So um, undertaking skills training and developing um, uh, traits and, and awareness that's useful in industry is also likely to be useful in academia as well. Um, similarly, um, if you want to stay in academia, training in um, what we might think of industry skills like uh, managing people and leadership are, are equally important and are things that uh, sometimes um, we, we find lacking um, in, uh, in in the academic sphere. So, um, yeah, what, what, um, so I would say this setting up this either or is really unhelpful. First of all, because you say it puts pressure on people thinking they've got to choose one or the other. In turn, that um, obfuscates the fact that there are lots of careers and types of work that actually operate in a grey area between academia and industry. They're, or they're both, or they're neither one or the other. Um, and also, it just denies the fact that there, is, that, the, that there are skills transferable across all of those things. It's not a matter of choosing whether to be trained for for one or the other in this section at the end of the chapter you talk about some programs um, that are starting to make real shifts in how they train the students and how they encourage students to see themselves one that you named was the arts co-op program at the university of british columbia where phd students in english and history um, do basically paid internships in a variety of settings beyond academia. And you also name it in the chapter that some of the, the positives of these things are that students then realize that they have real concrete skills they can list on their resume or their CV, such as they're good at collaboration, at project management, they understand impact. Did you want to talk about how some of the graduate programs that you looked at are making concrete changes in in what they encourage the students to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say the main thing that these programs are doing is they are offering graduate students an application of their skills. They're offering graduate students the chance to see how their skills can be applied to something beyond academia, how that works and what those applications are. And, and that's something traditionally quite missing from graduate school education, I think, um, is putting a graduate student in a different setting, a different environment, and actually getting them to understand how they can apply the ways that they do things in their research 
their methods of inquiry, their synthesis of information, their analysis to something in what they might call the real world. Um, and that's great, both because it gives people, it then gives them evidence uh, that they can talk about on CVs or in interviews, um, kind of, you know, um, uh, evidence for an employer as to the value that they can bring. But it also helps what we talked about earlier, um, which is giving graduate students the faith and the belief that they are valuable, that their skills are of value to many different um, areas of the economy uh, and of the job market. Um, and, uh, and being able to see that application through something like a placement, an internship, a knowledge exchange project or something like that, I think can be really transformative in that respect. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Um, I hope this episode sparks for listeners hope um, that there is hope and possibility beyond academia. I hope it sparks a realisation that um, leaving a traditional research and teaching job in a university does not mean completely forsaking um, the bits of your identity that make you academic. Um, and I hope it sparks curiosity um, and, and, and action um, for people who might be in graduate school at the moment um, to think about some of the, uh, the, the, the techniques and the things we've talked about to start widening their their own horizons for action as well. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Holly Prescott, and speaking with us about navigating the struggles of post-PhD employability. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.